We are taught, culturally taught, that everything has to be done through conflict. You have to go in there, you have to fight for your side, and somebody will win and get what they want. And that is, is weird. And everybody has compromise. The concept of compromise is wrong too. Because we don't think, oh, compromise means finding it somewhere we're actually legitimately in consensus. Compromise means everybody loses. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm going to be chatting with a politician. Now, in terms of voting preferences, I've often found myself wanting to vote green, knowing the environmental crisis we're facing. However, I've never been able to stomach the outright anti-science, anti-nuclear stance of the Canadian Green Party. I have found one Green Party member who does not outright slag nuclear. In fact, they are a candidate for the Canadian Green Party leadership. Dr. Amita Kuttner is co-founder of Moonlight Institute, a non-profit organization that seeks to create frameworks for an equitable and just future, taking into account the realities of the climate emergency as well as technology and decolonization. Amita holds a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Their research focused on black holes, wormholes, quantum effects, and the early universe. Amita ran for Canadian Parliament in 2019 and served as critic for science and innovation for the Green Party of Canada from September 2018 to February 2020 bringing forward policy on artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. Amita ran for leadership of the Green Party of Canada in 2020 on a platform of justice, science, and resilience. Dr. Kuttner, welcome to The Rational View. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. You are a multi-talented individual. <laughs> I have done a number of things in my pretty short life to date. Yeah, your website says you're working for an equitable and just future. I'm impressed with your commitment and the breadth of your work. You've certainly experienced more than your fair share of, of a lot of things. Uh, I, I also heard about your, your parents and the tragedy that, that happened there. Could you share with our listeners something of your background and your journey? Yeah, I'm happy to speak about that too, because it definitely has influenced how I got to where I am today. Um, so I'll start with that. I um, was away, luckily, in boarding school when I was 13. I had just turned 14. Um, and my home in North Vancouver was destroyed by a mudslide. It mm. killed my mother and permanently injured my father. He had a number of Absurd injuries, including 23 broken vertebrae, the torn aorta. Wow. So he had strokes in the hospital to save his life and has never been able to work since and result, had resulting brain damage. Um, but the mudslide itself was actually the responsibility of government in the sense that they really weren't supposed to build there and there were permits allowed and then it was kept secret oh, no. and they didn't actually check up on the work necessary. So that gave me a strong lesson in both the, the influence of extreme weather on, on, on how we actually kind of put at risk a lot of people. It also influenced how I think about risk and what we need to do to mitigate those things in the future and, and take climate change seriously. 
But it also gave me this this concept that government doesn't particularly exist to stand up for people hmm. and that we should be working harder to to make sure we have a government that is actually there to serve us. I see. Um, so I, yeah, that that's that. And then I, I went off and followed my dreams and my passions and got my PhD in astrophysics and then realized in grad school, as many grad students do, I think that I wanted impact mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and turned, turned towards policy and politics and tried that out for a bit. So here I am having done a bunch of political things and then right now working on policy in a nonpartisan way. Okay. And that's with your Moonlight Institute? Yes, it is. There's so many things I want to ask. As, as a fellow astrophysicist, I'm, I'm interested in your experiences, as, in the experiences of women and minorities in STEM fields especially. This is something I'm thinking about exploring in, in future podcasts. And I'd be interested to get your impression as to you know, what your experience was like going through a STEM field and, and doing a PhD and you know, what hurdles did you see and, and what should be done to, to make women feel welcome in STEM fields? Yeah. And I mean, now, now I don't identify as a woman, but I certainly did throughout my time. And, and I, I have actually said, you know, I went through my degrees as a woman in physics, whether I was or wanted to be or, or any of that. It was, <laughs> it was not up to me. And that was actually one of the biggest one of the biggest lessons for me was about systemic culture. And hmm. and that external view of me that I did not have control over. And this is, I think, separate from identity, because this applies to everyone in the sense that there are biases in the system against people. And so it didn't matter how at home or not I felt I was judged differently because of my exterior. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're 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 basically so many issues to cover there. <laughs> and I did, I did a lot of work for, for especially gender diversity in physics when I was, when I was getting my PhD. And it was, it was rough. And I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that it doesn't come down, it really doesn't come down to identity, but it comes down to marginalization and the experience of marginalization. And you can't tell from somebody's identity or their face or whatever, what they've experienced. Because there's so many intersections of privilege and, and marginalization. Um, so we tried to do work to make sure that every single student had the ability to flourish mm -hmm. and show up with their capabilities and not be trodden down by the, the culture or the expectation or the way of thinking, genius culture in particular. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I don't think, in a sense, the field was ready to reckon with the real question, which is around genius culture. Ah, okay. And that's a new term you know, there's, for me. Okay, well, let's talk about it. So there's there's so many different aspects. Like there's actually having experienced harassment. There's actually having like experienced racism. There's there's the random things that you experience and that show that you know you don't belong here. But then there's also also the work that I did advocating for people whose experiences I don't relate to or or share. Okay. And knowing that I I don't know what they're like, all I can do is empathize and do the best to represent what they say they need. And, and actually approaching any sort of conversation I believe about, about equity and injustice, diversity, inclusion should be done from that. You don't particularly need to know what somebody's going through to honor their experience and to listen to the changes that need to be brought about. But genius culture, 
is one of the things I believe at the core of it, other than the fact that the academy and the institutions have been there for a long time and the backdrop of those institutions is white supremacy and patriarchy, whether we like it or not. Um, and science has not always been clean. It has been used to perpetuate racism and create racism in a lot of cases. And that's a reckoning we also have to have. But beyond that, there, there absolutely is this concept that your abilities are innate and you either are brilliant or you're never going to succeed. Hmm. And this, this is something that actually influences everybody. And, you know, I, I had cishet white, white male students that dealt with this as well. And they came from backgrounds that did not give them the confidence and did not give them the education they needed to start out in university. Mm -hmm. And so they, they too experienced being pushed out of this and not having the opportunity to learn, to grow and become amazing researchers, which they probably could become. And so this applies to absolutely pretty much everybody. It's just, it's one of those things that, that's made worse for a lot of people who have especially intersections of marginalization because they show up and say you just don't have access to the mathematics, the education in high school, okay. or you were a non-traditional learner. I was a non-traditional learner, but I figured it out. And that's partially because of the privileges that I had and having a having parents with computer science degrees, a father with a mathematics degree. Mm -hmm. So I had my own interpretation view of the universe ability to do mathemat mathematics that let me not be influenced by the fact that I didn't get along with the academic system. I see. But people coming into that, they're immediately told basically like, if you can't understand this the way it's presented right now, you're inadequate, you're inept, you don't belong, and you'll never be able to get it. And instead we need to flip that around. We need to say, actually, you can learn, you can grow. It's a matter of hard work, perseverance. And yeah, everybody start, starts with a certain level of aptitude, but that does not determine where you can get to, what you can understand. And there certainly isn't only one way of understanding it. Mm -hmm. But that I noticed, it's, it, it starts and it exists within undergraduate culture all the way through into prof professorship, where you have professors evaluating applications for people and saying, well, this person is good and this person isn't on metrics that actually do not line up with success. Okay, interesting. Of research. That would be that would be interesting to look into. So the metrics they're using are are not supportable. Yes, and it's it's fascinating because we actually had colloquia about this. People are doing research about about you know success in in graduate school hmm. and other you know fields in general, and they find that you know GPA and GRE scores. Are, don't actually correlate with success. Interesting. Um, it's 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 incredible, and what they find did is is grit. Ah. Mm -hmm. And grit is difficult to measure. It takes a lot more work to determine and find, but it, it relates to that having a growth mindset, knowing you can learn, persevering, pushing through, um, developing resilience to the things around you but also being willing to continue. Yeah, the, the quote of Edison was 90, uh, genius is 97% perspiration, 3% inspiration, something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very useful because people all, often get into this, and I, I see where you're coming from, people often get this, this innateness of IQ. People like to take the IQ test, and, and so I am, this, this slots people for life effectively. Uh, when you take your IQ test and figure out where where you fall in the hierarchy of, of genius. And the IQ test has got an incredibly racist history. 
So, um, which I've read a little bit about, but it's, it's, it's not a good idea. And I think that that, that idea of hierarchical intelligence is just, is inaccurate. And it's so many times this comes up, people say, oh, you must be brilliant. You must be a genius. I'm like, well, sure. I probably have some basic aptitude for certain things that allowed me to get where I was early on or whatever. But the truth is, no, I, I worked hard mm -hmm. and I cared and I was fascinated with it. I was continually fascinated with it. Yes, I, I have a tendency, I believe, to push forward and to persevere. And I have a determination that I don't recognize in, in everybody else. But that certainly isn't intelligence. Okay. So as much as I'd like to explore your, your astrophysical research, <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to leave that for, for another podcast. Uh, but I'm really interested... As well in the in the policy aspects and the the politics and and the Green Party and, and your work as a politician. Now, coming at this as a scientist with a scientific background, you know you're you're aware of the evidence and the risk of climate change, and you know we all want to get rid of fossil fuels as fast as possible. For most scientists I've spoken to, nuclear energy seems to be a very useful tool for this job. The Green Party in general, however, seems to be strongly anti-nuclear. And I know I've sent questions to Elizabeth May and to, to my representatives, and I've never had a response on the issue. They've never engaged with me on this issue. But now I have you here. <laughs> Can the Green Party accept nuclear energy as a tool in the fight against climate change? It's a very, very interesting question because... I think there's my opinions and then there's whether that's possible in the Green Party. <laughs> uh, and what I what I see um, from having run with and, and having paid attention to what was going on in the party in terms of discourse, it's not singular minded. There is an internal dialogue, a difference of opinion and a discussion about it. Historically, the party has been very staunchly anti-nuclear. And I'm not all, I, I don't always disagree with that in the sense of I think that there is a lot more hope and potential in the future of nuclear than I have recognized in the past. And that's not because I have any fear or disagreement with the technology, but rather historical implementation, and especially the way it's been implemented in Canada. Mm -hmm. And that being the companies that run it, the irresponsibility of the way that we've handled nuclear waste storage. And that's not to say that I see that as a, just a huge issue on its own, but particularly how it's being done has been an issue. Okay. And, and so the arguments that I would hear consistently against it are cost, which to me also has to do with management, and um, waste storage in the sense that there, there is a justice issue here. There has been a tendency to store nuclear waste on indigenous land and unceded indigenous land mm -hmm. and pose risks to people that really shouldn't shouldn't be done and also near waterways and this gives an idea and a sort of a basic distrust of the possibilities and then there is the issue of not understanding the technology and the actual risks of things mm -hmm. where you get into things like well, we're phasing out coal and it's like you know you have a lot of radioactive waste nuclear waste basically from things that are not nuclear plants <laughs> and you know there's 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 all there's that huge conversation right mm -hmm. um and then on the other side i also heard the other thing you know nuclear is the only thing that we should be doing we should not be talking we should not be worrying about any of these things we should just go full steam ahead and i kind of was 
in the in the political lens here, as somebody who's like, yeah, let's you know, let's explore nuclear technologies. There's a good place, but also let's be careful. Let's take the precautions necessary. Let's address the concerns, both environmental and justice concerns. But let's not write this off, and let's certainly you know work it into our plan for sustainable energy long term. And I think that there's a couple different questions there because I think that there's a couple different timescales that people are talking about. People are talking about like immediate mitigation versus long-term sustainability for your grid. And I think those are different conversations mm-hmm. and have potentially different answers. Mm-hmm. But that's not where I saw the conversation. I saw people on extremes. And I was just like, all right, can we meet, can we meet in the middle? And so my answer to that question is there is actually a possibility that we could be open to this. But what needs to happen is a very nuanced, open, scientific and also heartfelt conversation before we get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I, I started this podcast was to find that middle, because the for reasons I don't want to go into, I mean, the, the social media has polarized so many discussions and it becomes echo chamber on the left versus echo chamber on the right. And the two don't cross paths and no one steps out and actually discusses, look, nobody looks for common ground. Nobody discusses things. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I completely agree with that emotion. That is, that is also how I felt about political discourse. And I think one of the things that gets lobbed at the Green Party is we're centrists. And I don't, I personally have take issue with the political spectrum in general. So I kind of want to throw it out and just have okay. a conversation. But then that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. I don't like that polarization. I would like to have a conversation and about what we're actually trying to do together and what our values are. And so mm-hmm. that's that's actually how we tried to run the campaign and the leadership race and how we tried to bring policy forward, which was, okay, let's actually do this from a scientific perspective in the sense that we actually declare our assumptions and state our intentions. Because intentions are not a thing, of course, in science. Well, kind of are. You actually, you are always biasing whatever you're doing. But in, in, in applying a scientific method to something that isn't science, so it's policy development, you, you want to declare what your intentions are. Because what I heard all the time, and it, it applies to nuclear as well, because it must be evidence-based, it must be science-driven, mm-hmm. is that people talk about evidence-based policy like you can use raw data and give, get yourself policy. No, you can't. You just can't. You have to be attempting to solve some problem. You have to be, you have an overarching mindset that you're putting into it. You Mm -hmm. have values that you're following. And if you don't admit those, you don't admit those assumptions, you don't admit your intentions and your goals, you are going to get a product that you do not have control over. And the example I often use is, is that of housing. And so I've heard it. People were like, well, Following the evidence, we have to build this many units. I'm like, all right, so, but why? Why here? They're like, well, we need the supply. Like the, okay, so let's talk about the framework that you're using here, the assumptions you've made, and your intentions. What's your goal? Mm -hmm. Your technical goal is to have enough units to house the number of people who are unhoused. But you're not talking about giving people a home. You're saying that our economic system functions perfectly. And you're also saying that you're assuming that the infrastructure will support it and that you don't have to worry about that. Mm. And that's what's, what happens in a lot of places in terms of development is there's not this like other conversation. But if you were to approach this instead to say, like, I, I believe that housing is a human right. I want everyone to have a home. 
you will end up with a completely different solution. And, and you say like, I value community for people instead of just setting up basic units or whatever. So that, you know, that, that sort of thing. And that's a basic example, but that is the framework that we wanted to approach everything with. What do you, what system are you working in? What do you understand about that system? What do you want to change about it? What are the assumptions you're making? And what's your intention? And so this is how I would approach, say, energy policy as well, in that, you know, we talk about the climate emergency, we talk about energy futures, you talk about energy balance, and then you also talk about the other things that you're not, lines you're not willing to cross. So here, here's the issue with, with cleanliness, storage, and all these things, but you also get it on the table for everything else that you're using, like renewables. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's often apples and oranges when people are, are talking about these things and, and I've you know looked a lot into the nuclear and the debate between nuclear and renewables and, and there are two different discussions completely and you know the the dual standards as you mentioned before about coal and the radioactivity and the coal ash I mean if if someone were to bring a bucket of coal ash from the dump and into a nuclear uh, station they would have to bury that in a geological repository. They wouldn't be able to put it back in the dump <laughs> because it would set off the alarms. <laughs> they, they have to be below background. Yep, exactly. And all the arguments I hear about mining, for instance, is the same thing. You don't, you need a lot of, you know, metals that, whose current mining standards are not good enough and are causing human rights problems for most of your renewables. Yeah. And it's also an indigenous rights issue. Um, yeah. And the answer is just, I think we have to do it right in all cases. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you have communities who say, we don't, we don't want nuclear here because of a whole host of reasons, in, including we're on a shoreline. And that is, that is also an important consideration. So like community acceptance and permission is always necessary. Yes. Yeah. You take your time. You engage with the community. There's no... There's no urgency about burying nuclear waste. It doesn't pile up quickly. We, we've been going 60 years and it's a parking lot at this point. <laughs> so we have the time to, to properly consult with the communities and find communities that are interested in hosting this. And I think that's a good way to go forward. You know, that's exactly it, too, is that there's been, I think, so much misinformation and so much irresponsibility in the sense that as far as we've had most of these technologies... There has been an implicit allowance of basically continued marginalization and the, you know, suffering has been perpetuated for a whole bunch of different populations. So we're looking at mining in, on indigenous land across the entire planet, often run by, run by Canadian mining companies. That is incredibly dangerous mm -hmm. and, and really bad, but we don't, we don't talk about it. We should be talking about it. Some people talk about it, but it's not, it's not widely discussed. And we have had this willingness to, as a culture and society, decide who has value and who doesn't as to where we allow these things to happen. And instead, we need to start with, the, I believe, the human rights framework and say, okay, everybody has, has these rights and let's figure it out together. And I think it's totally possible. Yeah, the, the standards of mining operations across the world are so different and, and and a lot of irresponsible companies will just go and do whatever they want in China or, you know, in Africa and, and with, you know, without looking at what they should be doing. And that, you know, and that, that's not nuclear. It's, it's, you know, it's everything that mines. Mm -hmm. It's everything that mines. And then it's the same 
it's the same for any anything you're doing. So you're putting anything on anyone's land, right? It's like if we're talking about decolonization, where's the where's the you know UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples framework that we need in order to be talking about any sort of you know energy development? But that you know that community consultation, free prior and, and informed consent, it applies to absolutely everything. And and right now we're you know going full steam ahead on a whole bunch of things without this to start out with. And then nuclear is, I think, bogged down by a lot of misinformation and also that fear, that fear of lack of consultation and information. It's a large bureaucracy or a big company that needs to implement a large nuclear plant. And that has an implicit level of distrust amongst a lot of the population because of past past things that corporations and, and large governments have done and your distrust of government itself is you know completely justified uh, any large it seems any large organization of people there there seems to be the possibility of, of going astray and I, I don't know you know some things we need to do on a large scale and we need to have some way to to have just bureaucracies in place that aren't <laughs> that aren't corrupt. <laughs> I have ideas about that too. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I think actually what it's, it's, it also comes from having a physics background in, in wanting to look at efficiency and not efficiency. Like people talk about economic efficiency, but efficiency is in like, what's going to work the best. And basically I see the whole thing as a, a maximization problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of different inputs and you're like okay what are you trying to do here let's get clear about what you're trying to do and then let's actually find an equilibrium and that's never it's never done so you're we, you instead have ideological arguments between scales of government and instead of conversation of like well what's the system you're trying to run and how is it going to run smoothly so what level of government and at what scale is it going to make the most sense yeah it, it seems like the the whole discussion at the polit political level is so polarized that nothing sensible can come out of it. I'm, I'm almost cynically done with that whole situation. <laughs> I think it's polarized and it's also, so my opinion on the political system is that the entire thing is constructed to act the way it currently does. So I have a problem of the basic structure and methods of governance because it is actually like, it, other than the fact that there is massive partisan debate and division, the people in their jobs in government are set up to be kind of ineffective. Hmm. And they, they always feel like they're beholden to another group of people and nobody feels like they have power. And yet the power is concentrated on a couple, on a few people. Yes. And they are actually, you know, largely influenced by not very many other people in corporations. And yet a good system, especially a good system of democracy, is one that's going to be distributed and everybody's empowered. So you feel like we can actually have these conversations. We actually have agencies, communities to make decisions for ourselves and that the government representatives don't feel like they're beholden, but rather like capable actors for the people that they care about. Because we're not getting, we are not getting good solutions for pretty much anything. And the discourse is frankly useless. Mm -hmm. I think in even in the bureaucracy, in the government bureaucracy itself, most of the incentive is to do nothing. There, There is no incentive to take a risk as a public servant that that's the only way you can lose your job is if you do something right if, if you do nothing you've got it made there's, there's no feedback the, the incentive structure needs to change yeah i mean these are these are good people they're not bad people but they're in a situ in a sis in a system that's 
it's broken. Yep, I think that that's that's exactly it. And I the way I kind of look at it is that I don't think the system's broken. I think that's how it's constructed. It's not a good one, but I think that this is actually this is what it's supposed to be doing. Mm. To focus power in a few people. To focus power in a few people and to to inf- reinforce the status quo. So the idea that what we have now is actually ideal. And that is, I think, what a lot of people are fundamentally disagreeing with. So this isn't, it isn't working, but this is what the system is designed to do. So it's going to continue to do this. It's supposed to be a system that does not allow rapid change or, or transformational change. I think rapid change is a bit dangerous, but transformational change is, is important. You, you want to have transformational change that doesn't disrupt people's lives. That is the actual goal on the, you know, on the fine scale, not disrupt people's lives and then change them all in a positive direction. But that is, that is, doesn't work. You can't get that in the system, not easily. Oh, well, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to you fixing it. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to, to the nuclear discussion and the, the energy policy, which is important to me and a lot of my listeners, is the Green Party opposed to eco-modernism as a philosophy? So I think that requires talking about what the Green Party is. The Green Party is a extremely democratic party. And it's also an incredibly individual-focused party in the sense that we don't whip our votes. Every single representative of the party that's elected stands with their primary mandate is to represent the community they were elected to represent. And their job is to find out what their community needs and wants and to do the best for that. And what ties us together as a party is that we hold a certain set of core values and hopefully (laughs) a unified concept of what we want the world to be like. I'm not entirely sure that we're unified on that to be quite honest. But um, after going through the leadership race, I'm like, ah, uh, no, we don't know. We don't have the same definitions of our values for that matter. But, but that's, that's that. So I think to say, like, does the Green Party have this opinion? I don't know. Because it is the Green Party official policy and the policy process is, it is what it is. So it takes a while to get the official policy changed, but it's, it's agreed upon by all the members. So if you want to know whether something's accepted or not, you're basically looking to see whether the entire membership can agree on something. And you're talking thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that people don't always look at those policies either to find out what they are. So I think the question is really, if you were to put this forward as a concept and discuss it in the Green Party, would you get a majority of members? And I don't know. Because I can't, I can't really know. Mm-hmm. But the truth is it's going to vary person by person. So if any individual is looking to say, well, is my local Green Party going to be up for this? Get in touch with your local Green Party. Find out if the people you're organizing with are or not. And yeah, eco-modernism is, is going to be something that there are a lot of Greens on board for and some who will be like, no, not at all. So I was looking and I found um, an event. There was a Green Party event uh, hosted by... Um, Fredericton MP Jenica Atwin, a Green Party roundtable to discuss nuclear issues. And I was like, wow, this is great. Green Party is discussing nuclear. I, I tuned in. It was 
uh, anti-nuclear activists uh, Susan O'Donnell and Gordon Edwards from the Canadian Coalition from Nuclear Responsibility, and they forgot to include the pro-nuclear person or the scientist. I was, ah, uh, <laughs> I, I, I could listen to <laughs> the first 10 minutes and then I had to turn it off. How do we get this conversation into the Green Party or into society to, to look at the both sides of the issue, to get a balanced representation? And, and, you know, I'd love to vote for the Green Party. I really would. But I, you know, I've always not been able to get past the anti-nuclear bit. On that, there's a couple things. One is, I think, well, first, Jenica Atwin is like one of my most respected people ever. She's like one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Um, and my understanding is that that community has a very, you know, strong set of personal reasons that make them uncomfortable with nuclear. And so that, I think, is a, in a way a separate conversation than how do we introduce this in the party and how do we introduce this more broadly? Because that, there are conversations to be had there, but I think that they're, they're delicate. And I think that addressing this is addressing where kind of we started this, which is the polarization in that there's, and actually, so where I see the discourse in the party right now too, there is polarization. So that is in a sense why you're likely to see, hear discussions that are only one side or the other, because they don't particularly like to talk to each other because of the polarization. The other, the other side is there as well, but you're, they're not, they're, they're not particularly interested in having public debate because it ends up in public argument. Mm. And I, I found it interesting because when I was running for leader, I was kind of willing to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And I definitely got people who were like, what are you doing? Like, you're never, no one's ever going to be okay with this. Like, <laughs> like disagree with you, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we can't have that. I'm like, you're fine. I'm happy for you to say like, no, for your community, but we need to have this conversation for the country and everybody should be able to have this conversation. But I also got the other thing. I got angry emails telling me that my interest in finding a balance in it and wasn't acceptable and that I had to take a much more pro-nuclear stance. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do here? So that, that's, that's where I recognize the polarization and that me saying, actually, I would like to, you know, still support the phasing out of older nuclear plants and, you know, the exploration of new technology um, and the funding of research and, and taking the care that we need to take in terms of making sure these things are not run by, you know, SNC level, et cetera. But that, that I got that pushback was what taught me that. The way to start this conversation is by having it with the people who are already in the middle. And to, instead of, you know, bring together different polarized sides to kind of make their arguments, is to start by talking about talking to people who already are kind of open to it and to get a real solid foundation on facts and possibilities and let that grow. And this is kind of honestly it's a little bit it's a little bit the green attitude towards policy making in general which is there's always a balance to be found. And when you find a balance you're going to really irritate everybody on the fringe but you're going to have actually made the majority of the people happy. And that's, that's what we're seeking. So I don't particularly have the answer to how to properly start that argument because the other issue with politics itself is that people like politics to be inflammatory. People like politics to have different sides to it. And that's in, in fact my hope with the, with the Greens is that we don't do that as much. In that what I see for the, the most parties 
and this comes back to the issues with the setup of our governmental system, but they need the opposition parties in order to flourish. They need to have somebody to say, I disagree with you, you're wrong. It makes their arguments stronger. It makes their existence have meaning because they carve out a place in the political spectrum. They carve out their ideologies and then you fight over it and you make people choose one when most people don't actually agree with one party or another and they would really just like a representative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's the issue when something like this exists in kind of a political arena is that people will follow that tendency to polarize. And even if the Green Party has the intention to not do that, we do because we are part of that political system, whether we like it or not. So we will have the tendency to pick sides of issues and debate them rather than trying to find some sort of balance in the middle within our own kind of thought so that we can present that as some sort of solution. Um, and that actually happened also during the leadership race and talking about gun rights. And the other thing is nobody tends to like, you don't get press and attention for having a non, you know, fiery opinion about something. Or an unpopular That's, opinion. <laughs> or, or, but if, I mean, if it's unpopular enough, then, <laughs> then you do. But, <laughs> yeah, but you get the press, maybe not the, the attention you want, but you get the press. Um, but I think that that, I think it's, it's, it's going to have to be, to be local. And this is, you know, this is not the first conversa reasonable conversation that I've had about nuclear and within the Greens or within Canada in general. And I think it's one of those things that it has to be done with kind of this bringing everyone's needs and opinions to the table. And the table has to be small and it has to be local. And it has to be instead of ever being about imposing something on somebody, it's about finding the solutions and the interests of any particular group, but mostly local community and seeing how those can be met. And I think whenever our, our, our needs and wants and wishes and fears are recognized and met, we then have the space to have a larger conversation. But until that's the case, it's really hard to do anything else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a, a good way to, to approach it. And that's, you know, it's a lot of work to, you know, you need popular opinion to sway the the a lot of work thing is a huge problem i think it's actually like one of the one of the biggest problems that we have and actually what was one of the reasons we founded the nonprofit that i, well, I founded with my friend um is that what we recognize is there's a lot of there's a lot of hard work missing that isn't done and this exists in a lot of different places and a lot of it is actually the translation of academic work and research into practical applications that can be understood by anybody. Mm -hmm. But the same is here. You know, why, why do we have, you know, such contentious discussions around extremely sensitive topics in a very public way? Say systemic racism. Because we have not found out, as people, how to do the difficult work of having those conversations on a personal way and in a, and in a non-argumentative way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's very difficult to, to step out and, and, and talk to the other side as you see them because everyone has a caricature of their opposition and it's much easier to, to argue against a caricature than it is to argue against a person. 
<laughs> and, and I found that myself. I've tried to engage anti-nuclear people and it's oh so difficult to just hold my tongue and, and try to find a common ground. But it's what we need to do. You know, we need to say, okay, well, we all want to get rid of fossil fuels, right? You're a scientist, I'm a scientist. We agree that fossil fuels needs to go what's the next step? How do we get there in the best way possible to save the most lives? I think that that's this, it, it comes down to the, the systemic issue again, where we are taught, culturally taught, that everything has to be done through conflict. Yes. You have to go in there, you have to fight for your side, and somebody will win and get what they want. And that is, is weird. And everybody has compromise. The concept of compromise is wrong too. Because we don't think, oh, compromise means finding a, somewhere we're actually legitimately in consensus. Compromise means everybody loses. Hmm. And so nobody wants to go into these things because everybody feels like they're going to come out of it unhappy. And so the, the stage for negotiation is set for failure because you're not in, you're not in something. You're in, a, you're in a conflict for the sake of it. And there is no, there is no way to get from that attitude but the problem is that attitude absolutely is the backdrop. Yeah. You have to set up a new kind of system, a new framework in order to be, be, make it possible to have that conversation. And you see this in the way that sometimes we have like televised, televised nowadays, online somewhere, people will have really, you know, massive debates over issues. But what is it? It's entertainment. Yeah. And people are trying to score points That's against true. their opposition. They're not trying to find consensus. They're not trying to find something they can agree on. They're not trying to actually understand the other person. And I think that one, we're stuck in that system, and the other is we've been taught to be afraid. And we've been taught to be afraid to not know something, to be wrong, to not get what we want, to quote unquote lose. And there is, there's just like, it's, we're going into this with our, with our hunches raised. We're not, we're not prepared. And it's, it's really hard. Like I don't, I, I can say, I can say that it's possible, but the, the work that actually goes into creating that environment to be able to have those conversations well is, 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 is a lot of work. And it's, it also involves kind of setting agreements with the, with people and to get to a point where you're even willing to set agreements with somebody is kind of a long road. One thing you, you said earlier, um, tweaked me a little bit when you said um, you want to shut down old nuclear plants. That is something that we're coming up against as a society in a lot of cases. The, the nuclear fleet that was built back in the 60s and 70s is starting to become older. <clears throat> well, I'll say that like, that's, a, that's a wild generalization, and I think it was in talking about a particular, a particular one. And there are options between between just attempting to continue it or shut it down. Um, and I think that that is, that's actually one of the points of misconception in what you do moving forward. And I think it's a, it can be a framing, a framing issue. Okay. There's a couple that come to mind. Um, I know they've done the refurbishment or going forward on refurbishing Darlington and Bruce uh, genera generating facilities in, in Ontario. Um, I'm not so familiar with the one in uh, New Brunswick, uh, and Pickering is coming to uh, the end of its current uh, useful life. There's a lot of discussion that I've been involved with on, on whether we can save Pickering and refurbishing it, 
refurbish it. Um, uh, the current thought is that it's going to be shut down in 2024. And I was looking at, you know, what would the impact of that be? And there's been a lot of people looking at, you know, what happens when 24 terawatt hours of green power <clears throat> goes offline. And we've seen it in New York, where the natural gas comes up. Now they shut down Indian Point. We've seen it in Germany. The, the coal is not going away uh, as they shut down their nuclear plants. The stable background or the stable um, base load of nuclear allows us to have more renewables, I feel. Yes, it, it does. And I, you know, I remember um, attending a presentation on basically, you know, taking fossil fuels out of the entire U.S. connected grid and the way to do it and, you know, have enough base load power. And I think so for that, like I from both a personal and a political standpoint, I think that those conversations belong in the communities where those plants are. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, with a strong dose of, of non-biased science, I say non-biased because I think when science itself is not, well, shouldn't be biased, usually is, but in the way it's presented. So it's not put forward because I've, you know, I've, I've gone to presentations done by oil companies mm -hmm. and it's often hard when something is presented by a corporation to know whether you can trust them or not. And so that idea of independent consulting and like reality, like what is this actually going to be? And also kind of, this comes also down to the communication of risk, which is something that I have been talking about also in how we talk about AI and other things. But I think that we usually think about I'm actually also very frustrated about the conversations about risk mitigation for climate change effects as well. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Earthquakes, all of it. Anytime we're making a decision about risk for a community. For one, no one else should be making that decision other than the people who are directly affected by it. Okay. But we think about risk in like a very kind of linear way. And you're like, is it high risk or low risk? It's not, it's not how it works. It really is a matrix. You have different types. You're looking at, is this, you know, is this something that's going to be catastrophic and, and, and likely? <laughs> or is this going to be catastrophic and rare? Or is this going to be, you know, not that big of a disruption and extremely common? Then maybe you actually should be doing something about that, too which is the issue we have in a lot of cases, is risks that are, don't seem that extreme are things that we don't know how to deal with. And yet they actually cause a lot of disruption. And so when we think this like low level of stuff, so this is, this, that risk matrix is basically, I think, one of the things that we need to have a conversation about. And then I'm sure as, as you know, the other issue is discussing statistics. Yes. And it's been just a mess with the pandemic. Because you even have people who are talking about stuff well, because they are communicating their probabilistic information from a public health standpoint, and it's accurate. But no one has ever taught everybody in the population that they're not allowed to apply those numbers to them as an individual, because somehow that's been left out. So you have people walking around saying, I have a 3% chance of catching COVID. And I'm like, no, that is not at all what's going on. Like, you can't, you can't just apply that to your age. And so the same thing happens, I think. So when we're talking about risk probabilities, risk mitigation. 
we don't have an understanding of what risk actually means, and we don't have an understanding of the probability. Yeah. So even if you're saying something, you know, prob probabilities don't exist in a vacuum. You're not, you know, you, you exist on time scale, you exist in severity, you exist in everything. And we also, as people, it's just a whole bunch of compounding issues to make this difficult, but you also have run up against a, a population, and this definitely comes up with looking at climate futures, that has no way of comprehending in the sense, in a way that's comfortable, the possibilities of the future. Mm -hmm. And so what I've found is people are, that people can understand catastrophe and people can understand things are fine. They have no room for the middle, mm. which deals with uncertainty, but also deals with the very, very likely possibility that we're actually going to have a really horrible time and we're going to get, we're going to get through it. Because nobody has been taught to face hardship. Nobody has been taught that they can make it through something. Everybody's like, oh, you're so inspirational because I'm like, nah, eh. but I actually <laughs> just want to get everybody to like be able to face the things that I've faced without having to go through it. So people have this idea that you have to have gone through something. You have to go through something traumatic to develop the preparation for something like that. Hmm. And I fundamentally disagree. We just need to prepare ourselves better for something like that. And I think it will improve the conversation if we can talk about what it actually looks like. But there's so much fear. The possibility that like people have to face, people can face losing their home if it means the world ends. But people can't face losing their home and having to live with that fact because they've never been given the skills to do so. Hmm. Indeed. Wow. We have a lot of work ahead of us. And uh, I think we're getting towards the end of our time slot. So <laughs> I've really had a great time chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on here and, and talking with me about all of the, this stuff. It's very interesting. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in your future endeavors. Uh, and hopefully you can uh, pull the Green Party along and, and get science in there and, and, and change the world. That would be wonderful. Um, a last question for you. Um, what's your favorite science fiction movie or book? So my favorite science fiction book that I've read, because there's a lot that I haven't read that I've wished that I've read, is is Binti. It's the Binti trilogy. Binti. Um, and I would suggest everybody looks it up. It is just absolutely incredible. Okay. I, I can't even, I can't describe it. <laughs> um, um, and in, in terms of movies, uh, I don't know, I'm just a Trekkie. That's, ah, that's awesome. what it is. So we're <laughs> bringing everything back to that recently. Me too. <laughs> Who, who's the author of Binti? I believe her name is Nidhi Okorafor. Very well. I'll have to look that up. Thank you so much, Amita. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck with all of your work, too. It's extremely important. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.